the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are justified by God's kindness. That's what grace is, His kindness toward us. Justification means legal acquittal in the Greek language. Not guilty. The judge here is speaking for us through Christ. We are declared not guilty because of God's kindness given to us in Jesus. The judge acts for us with kindness. Paul says it is a gift of God. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call at any time, 24-7, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is standing by right now to take your phone call. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko, with the righteousness of the gospel of God. We'll bring you the first portion of this message today. We are grateful for a cross. And we're grateful for a forgiving God. May we worship you. May we learn what it means to have the gospel of truth in our life. To live for you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You probably saw the headline. Jesus was in the headlines again, but in a most unusual way. It was intended as an advertisement for the student body of Kent State University. The advertisement was simple and in-your-face, kind of, you know, rude, but it was there. It was a question for the campus to ponder, and the question itself says a lot about the university's values. The question asked if you need Jesus qualifies as a form of hate speech. How many of you are following that in the news? If you need Jesus, and they said, is that hate speech? Imagine a university asking its student body that kind of question, thinking that maybe it is. That's how far our country has shifted over the last few years. Other questions are also in the mix. Build a wall, no more gays, and women need to serve their man. But what caught the attention of the country, what kind of made us all stand still, was this question that was a statement, really. Do you need Jesus? Is that hate speech? And, of course, it was implied that it is. And so we are living in a time when you voice your love of Christ, when you share your love of Jesus, and it can be interpreted as hate speech. Now, how many of you ever prayed for someone in Jesus' name and they look at you kind of cross-eyed? Has that ever happened to you? Oh, it's happened to me. You know, I like praying in Jesus' name for people. I like praying for people in places where they do not expect it because I believe the name of Jesus has power to draw people to him. This morning, I'd like to say without any embarrassment that you and I, we need Jesus. The whole world needs Jesus because in the kindness of God, Christ Jesus has become for us the righteousness of the gospel of God. A righteousness that we could not attain, a righteousness that we could not manufacture, a right now righteousness that is good enough for every day of our lives and good enough for the judgment day too. In Romans 1 to 3, we've been making a journey through Romans. The Apostle Paul establishes the universal fact of our common human condition that every human being is a sinner in a bad kind of way. Now, the last time I looked in the mirror, I have to confess that Pastor Mike Oxentanko is a sinner in need of grace. 
Can you affirm that as well, that you are in that sinner camp? And with it comes a huge need in our lives. A need for God, a need for forgiveness, a need for growth and sanctification where the life is transformed and mended by an outside force that is greater than ourselves. And so Paul spends the first three chapters of Romans establishing the fact the Jew has sinned, the Greek has sinned, and guess what? Everyone is a mess because all have sinned. The human condition is so bad that we cannot fix ourselves. And thus his journey through the gospel of God is to show us what we are in need of God's righteousness. In Genesis 3, the serpent took the entire human race astray, didn't he? Took the entire human race astray. And we have been doing serpent talk and serpent living ever since. Romans 3 verse 12. Paul says, all have turned aside together. They have gone wrong. No one does good. Not even one. Now, does that exempt any of us here today? No, we're in the center camp because of this phrase. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. How many of us have been deceptive in some way in our lives? Every one of us, according to this verse. It says their venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. How many of us have spoken down about someone in our lives? We all have, haven't we? He goes on to say, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, a bitter attitude towards someone here or there, and their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. Now he's talking about the corporate human race, which includes us. And then he ends by saying this in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, so the they that he's talking about is us. So we tend to live life in such a way that there's not a fear of God in our life. Now, fear in the right way, where we love God, we obey him. We tend to go our own direction and not subject our lives to the authority of God. We are totally depraved as human beings, and we cannot change that awful fact by ourselves. And no matter how much effort we put in the mix, our efforts cannot make good people out of bad people. Dr. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion speaks out against the God of the Old Testament. I mean, he's arrogant about it. If you've ever watched Dr. Dawkins online or in a public forum, he doesn't have any problem whatsoever saying the God of the Bible is stupid, temperamental, and the like. And so he argues that this fictitious being, the God of the Old Testament, is incapable of the kindness virtue that we seek in our society. He makes this statement, the higher one's intelligence or educational level, the less one is likely to be religious or hold beliefs of any kind. Of course, what he's saying here is if you go to church, if you believe in the God of the Bible, if you believe in Jesus, you're stupid. Isn't that what he's saying? Now look, he's marshalling a lot of intellectual prowess behind that statement. He's not a dummy. The Bible calls him a fool because the fool has said in his heart there is no God. But he's not a dummy. He's intelligent. There are intelligent, foolish people out there. And he qualifies. So he makes this statement, the higher one's intelligence or educational level, the less one is likely to believe. And thus the atheist becomes the great moral teacher that leads the unenlightened away from God, that leads the person who does not know God right away from God. It's just more of the same old serpent talk that started in Genesis 3. You don't need God. Move away from him. Romans 1, 22 to 23, Paul states the truth that Dr. Dawkins has proved by this very statement. Look at Romans 1, 22 with me. He says, claiming to become wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. 
For Dawkins, we are nothing other than a selfish gene machine with no chance of getting any kind favor from God of the Bible because he really doesn't exist. And even if he did, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. And thus, he says, we must look to evolution. We must look to the power of natural selection which brought the genes out of the primordial soup and somehow engineered us through the blind watchmaker of the evolutionary principle to find our pathway. And thus, he says, consciousness for a brief moment of time is our meaning and nothing more. So somewhere between the slime, the reptiles, apes, it all happened by chance to make us claiming to become wise, the Bible says, they became fools. The God of the Old Testament gave us the Ten Commandment moral law of God because the God of the Old Testament cares about us. Now wrap your heart around that. The God of the Bible loves you. God spoke on Mount Sinai as Ten Commandment law. We know from Scripture that He took it out of His sapphire stone throne. And from the Luchot Evan, it says in Hebrew, the tables of the stone. And the stone is identified in the context of Exodus 24 as Hatsapir, the sapphire stone throne of God identified as such in Ezekiel 1.26. He gave us the moral transcript of His character He gave us a copy of what the Bible calls His very name because God's name and God's law is the same thing in Scripture. And thus He communicated to us when He gave us the Ten Commandments that God is a very loving God who cares enough to interact with us on the human plane. The law, though, that law that He gave us that was placed on those tables of stone, as it stands on stone, as it stands on stone, the law condemns us all because the law is perfect The law is holy and just, and we are not perfect. Now, have you pinched yourself lately to ask yourself the question, am I perfect? Have you ever felt like you're perfect and you've interacted with imperfect people in the church? Come on. Ah, sure you have. Well, if so-and-so was better at this like I am. But you know what? We're all bad at something, aren't we? We all fail God at the deepest level somewhere. So we may be good here, but we are not good here. And when you roll it all out, we all need God, don't we? We need to be in a place where love and grace abounds, where forgiveness is the feeling, and somehow we can get over that failure that should just drag us down for the rest of our life. That's what the church is for. God established the church to be a hospital for sinners so they can, by sanctification, become saints in an atmosphere of acceptance and growth. The law condemns us. That's the function of law. And at this point, that's where Paul has arrived. The human condition is awful and the law is good and we need some way to reconcile the two. Romans 3.19. He says that, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20. For no human being will be justified in sight by works of the law since through the law comes what? comes the knowledge of sin. Paul makes some amazing statements here. Number one, the law speaks to those who are under the law. He means to say that the law speaks to condemn those who are under the law. The law here is not a neutral force in your life. The law is proof that we are sinners. And the law itself requires the death of the sinner and thus us. We must die if law is all there is to God. Why? Because God cannot be moral and God cannot be good. 
If God in His law say that it's okay to let you go on sinning, if God in His law says it's all right for the law of God to be broken, and then at some point the universe breaks apart. And so God must hold the line. He must say, no, go no further. Sin ends here. I destroy sin because I love the universe. And in a sense, I love the sinner who would destroy himself and make it awful for everyone else. Law must hold the line. And God is his law. You are listening to Reaching Your Heart. More with Pastor Michael Tanko in just a moment. A reminder, we are a listener-funded ministry. We do appreciate your support. If you can help us out with a financial contribution, here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. You can also find us on the web at reachingyourheart.com. Here he is, Pastor Mike, once again. So what does God do to be true to himself? Sin must be destroyed. How can he save the sinner and hold true to his law? Number two, Paul says that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God in the judgment day because of that moral law. He's not going to set it aside to save the sinner. He's not going to nail it to the cross to save the sinner. He's going to have to deal with that contradiction in some marvelous way to save the sinner or he cannot save his law either. That means the moral law of God will speak in the future judgment day. And that Ten Commandment law that so many preachers and prelates and philosophers would like to do away with will find the whole world guilty of breaking the moral law of God, which is the will of God himself. Every person, every person will have to answer to God because of the violation of the Ten Commandment law of God. God has not lowered the standard in the gospel. It sounds depressing, doesn't it? That's all there is. It sounds depressing. Well, it gets even worse. Number three, Paul says, for, or because in the Greek, for... No human being will be justified in sight by works of law. So by trying hard to keep the law, how many of us will get to heaven? Come on, look at that verse. It's very clear. Not a single person by works of law will stand free of condemnation in the judgment day. Now that's really a problem. And that's the blow that many a person of religion did not expect from Paul. You can try all you like to please God, to impress God, but in the end... You will not be justified because of the works of the law. You can't obey enough to make up for your former sins. You can't rehabilitate yourself enough to atone for that one thing you did wrong that you know about, no one else does, and it hangs in your head. The single sin that started your life of sin is all it takes for the law. The law and all its power and beauty and purity to condemn you every day of your life and in the judgment day. So by works of the law, you will not be justified in the judgment day. And you cannot have peace in your present situation either. Now, does that mean that God is lawless? God has to forgive us. How can he deal with us? Is he lawless? No. It means that we are a mess and that law cannot produce a righteousness that is good enough for the judgment day. Here, Paul is very clear. It is not the purpose of the law to save you. Why don't you repeat that after me? The law cannot save me. The law cannot save me. It is the purpose of the law to give us a knowledge of sin. The law is to teach us that we have a great need. It is also to be a moral standard, but it is not to be our Savior. Most good people struggle with sin every day. Most good people think that if they do better, that somehow God will accept them for the good deeds they do. That's not what's going on here. Friend, today is the day that it's hard to get through sin. Our present struggle is what we have every day. And whatever God does for us in a future judgment day... It better work today or we will never make it through the judgment day. I mean, if we can't have peace in our life, then we're going to come to the judgment day with no peace. Correct? So here is where it's at. Judgment is now. Jesus says now is the judgment of this world. 
He spoke of judgment when his words would be proclaimed, that somehow the truth of the gospel would meet people in their need. And he says, if someone hears the voice of the Son of Man, those who hear will live. And he meant right now and in the future resurrection. We need God's grace today. Most good people struggle with sin every day, and I'm no exception to this. And whatever God does for us, he's got to bring it to us now. Romans 3.21, Paul moves from what we have done wrong to what God has done right for us in Jesus. Look at verse 21, but now. Now he shifts from the past to now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here Paul is moving away from our feeble attempts to be righteous to a righteousness that stands outside of us, to a righteousness that is good enough for right now and the judgment day. The righteousness of the gospel of God. And Paul says that this righteousness has been manifested. The Greek word means it has appeared. It has suddenly come into history. It can be seen with the eyes. The righteousness of God is now visible for the human race and for those in need. The Greek word means, as I said, it has appeared. And so Paul is very quick to add that God's righteousness is apart from the law. The law being righteous, and he'll say so a little later on, is not the righteousness of God that will save you for the judgment day. God's righteousness that saves us is not of the law, he says here. Now, notice what he does not say. This does not mean that God's righteousness is lawless or against the law, as so many people say. God's righteousness does not do away with the law. God's righteousness upholds the law. He's quick to add that the law bears witness to this righteousness. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? What? For all who believe... For there's no distinction since how many people have sinned? Okay, there's all of us. We've all sinned. And what? We all fall short of the glory of God. So we've not just messed up in the past. We continue to fall short in the present. And so we need a right now righteousness that meets our need in real terms and real living. My translation reads, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek literally says the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Is Jesus the object of this faith in the sentence or the source of the faith that justifies and thus the subject of the idea? In other words, is the faith that he's talking about that justifies, is it Christ's faith or is it the faith of the believer in Christ? Well, the fact is it's both in a way. Christ's faithfulness is good enough to stand the scrutiny of the judgment day, whereas ours is not. But our faith in Christ links us to that so that we are in Christ. When you have faith in Jesus as your Savior, the perfect faith of Jesus becomes the basis of your acceptance with God right now and in the judgment day. And while your faith is a gift from God, your faith itself is not good enough to meet the claims of the law. Now, why do I say that? Because how many of you had faith in God and you start out all right and then it messed up a little bit? You ever done that? Come on. Have you? I have. Remember Abraham, he believes the Lord, and then the Hagar thing happens. And the Lord comes to him and says, walk before me and be blameless. And he falls on his face and says, oh no. And we've been there. See, God took his faith that was imperfect, and he worked with it. He justified him, he sanctified him, he accepted him, and he took him through life until the test came and he passed it. But when was he accepted? At the beginning of the journey, not just the end. Through the entire journey. So we need a right now righteousness that is perfect and fully faithful to God. 
a righteousness that keeps the law of God, a righteousness that does not fail. And we find that in the faith of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 3.21 that the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. We need to understand that we are not saved by that law. We are saved by a Savior. And the law points us to Jesus. In Galatians 3.23, Paul says, Faith came and thus was revealed, just like the righteousness of God was revealed in Romans 3.21. So Galatians and Romans are cross-talking. Turn with me to Galatians 3.23, and let's look at the verse. He says, Now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian, like our tutor that would discipline us, until Christ came that we might be justified, how? By faith. And notice here in verse 23 that faith came. Now look at verse 24. Do you see where it says Christ came? Are you looking at the two passages? So faith came, and when faith came, Christ came. You see, Christ and faith are treated as equivalents in the verse. The faith we need is the faith of Jesus. The faith that's good enough for the judgment day is the faith of Jesus. So faith and Christ are treated as the same good thing that came. And then he says in verse 24 that Christ as faith came so that we might be justified by faith, legally acquitted by faith. Literally, the text reads, so that we might be justified out of the faith. That's the Greek. The Greek text indicates that we are justified. Now grasp this. Not because our faith is good enough. We are justified out of the perfect, flawless faith of Jesus, which is good enough for the judgment day. Christ will stand before the judgment bar of God for his people. In Daniel 7, he comes before the Ancient of Days is presented before him in that great pre-advent judgment, a proxy judgment. And as the books are opened, we are not there. Christ represents us there. And he stands before God and he confesses the names of his people before God. I like that. And God looks at Christ and he says, Good enough if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, not good at all. So to be found in Christ is to be found in the Lamb's Book of Life. To be found in the Lamb's Book of Life is to have the faith of Jesus, which justifies. And your faith in Jesus is what places you in that beautiful, protective environment of God's grace. Christ is the focus. You see, the mustard seed of our tiny faith must reach out to the mountain of his faithfulness. And thus, when you place your tiny faith in Jesus, the huge, magnificent, powerful faith of Christ holds you, forgives you, keeps you from this point to the judgment day in Christ. You are safe. The faith of Jesus, friend, will stand the scrutiny of the law of God and all the mistakes you've ever made. And the devil's accusations will have no power against his faithfulness in the future and even now. The faith of Christ has no moral defect to it and no failing in it at all. The faith of Jesus, friend, is ours by faith in Jesus. Even if our days are bad and full of trouble and our faith frail, the faith of Jesus justifies. It provides a right now righteousness that's good enough for the judgment day and good enough for today as well. Romans 3.24 They are, what does it say, justified how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You know, what a wonderful verse this is. We sometimes read so fast, let the verse sink in. 
We are justified by God's kindness. That's what grace is, his kindness toward us. Justification means legal acquittal in the Greek language. Not guilty. The judge here is speaking for us through Christ. We are declared not guilty because of God's kindness given to us in Jesus. The judge acts for us with kindness. Paul says it is a gift of God. We are freed from the condemnation of the law as a gift of heavenly kindness. God's kindness, friend, is not a subjective kind of thing that you can't wrap your head around. It is real in concrete terms. The text says that the kindness of God is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has chosen to forgive you in kindness through the gift of Jesus as your Savior. Huge. Huge. I mean, it meets the need of a heart that cannot make it on its own. Christ is proof that God loves you and that God is kind to you and that God can set you free from you and the condemnation of the law that hangs over you. Thus, Jesus becomes the focus of the righteousness of the gospel of God that sets the sinner free. So how did God pull all this off? How could he be true to his law and set the sinner free? How did God provide a right now righteousness that can set you free from the stuff in your head, the condemnation you deserve, your failings in light of God's law, so you can grow and know him without the fear in the middle? How did he do this? Verse 25 holds the answer. Whom God put forward as an expiation. Some translations will say propitiation. The Greek is hilasterion. It's the Greek word used for the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled, where the law was at, where blood and law meet, and where the cancellation of the offense occurs, the expiation, the guilt offering, the blood atonement by His blood. Thanks for listening today to Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Michael Oxentenko. We are a listener-supported ministry and would love for you to partner with us as we continue to present Christ-centered biblical truths of Scripture in practical and relevant ways. Call us right now at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Visit the website reachingyourheart.com to find out more about this ministry, Reaching Your Heart, and Pastor Michael Oxentenko. That's Reaching Your yourheart.com. 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. You can donate right there on the website, reaching yourheart.com. 888-244-HOPE. Thanks for listening. And as always, we do pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.